I want to bring up Alberto Lopez. I've had one of, a great privilege to be Alberto's friend for a few years. I think really any gift in life, the greatest gifts are all relationship gifts. And my friendship with this young man of God has been wonderful. Uh, this weekend, um, the students, so many of our students from, from Every Nation Campus are out at our, at our regional retreat. And sometimes that can be somewhat of a bummer because you miss some of the energy. But largely because, oh, y'all are here and so beautiful and bringing so much energy, I can't be bummed. Partly because I know what they're getting out there, but I'm getting some life here. And I'm also getting some life from this young man today. Just I get to drive with him to Dallas and hang out with him as a friend, get more Jesus from him uh, hanging out with him this weekend. But also today, I think you in the next several hours are going to enjoy this sermon from this guy. Alberto Lopez. Let's give him a hand. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Welcome out to the springs. I love saying that, the springs. Something new is springing forth from here, and whether this is your first Sunday here or one of many, God is springing forth something new in you. Uh, I'm, like Peter said, I'm Alberto Lopez. I serve with the ministry arm of this church called Every Nation, and I'm excited, uh, elated, for lack of a better word, stoked to be with you here today. Uh, like Peter said, all the other guys are at a retreat right now, so that's why it kind of looks a little empty. And I have this ongoing joke with Peter. He always lets me preach when no one's here. So I'm like, cool, uh, which works out for me because then I can be crazy. Uh, I can get away with whatever I want to do, like have a five-hour service, and you're going to enjoy it. Uh, <laughs> uh, welcome out. Like I said, thanks for being here. Uh, and speaking of Peter, I believe in giving uh, honor where honor is due. And uh, Peter is a man, nothing short of legendary. Uh, I wouldn't be the little man I am if it wasn't for him. Uh, and I, and I kind of want to share a little story so y'all can gauge where I'm coming from. Uh, I think it was March. Peter was experiencing a lupus flare-up. Uh, and if you're unfamiliar with what that looks like, it didn't look very pleasant. Uh, and so when I found out, I shot Peter a text. I said, hey, man, uh, I hear things aren't looking really cool. Let me come over and help you out. Uh, he replied. He said, hey, yeah, come over and watch the kids. Uh, side note, if you're a young adult... And Peter asks you to come over and watch the kids. That means he's going to make you mow the lawn or, like, redo the roof or something. So I know where he was going. Uh, I show up to his house. He opens the door. He can barely walk. Uh, and I can tell he's in incredible pain. And uh, we sit on the couch. And instead of watching the kids, <laughs> for the next 45 minutes, we talk about Jesus. And Peter begins to share with me his heart for making disciples, his heart for this church, and his heart for this people. And I leave there, and I get into my car. And it dawns on me that he didn't waste a single breath to talk about the pain he's in, to talk about his current situation. All he could talk about was Jesus. And I thought to myself, what an honor it is to have a pastor who puts Christ before all. So can, can we just give it up for Peter? And that concludes today's message. I'm just kidding. Uh, we've been in Genesis this whole year. Uh, Genesis has grown to be one of my favorite books in the Bible. Uh, nowhere else in the Bible do you see such a wide variety of characters, such a wide variety of stories come into the picture so fast. Uh, and everyone's on a different spectrum. Everyone has a, a different purpose. But the same thing that they kind of have in common is that God's sovereign hand is over all of them. God was always there. Like, whether you messed everything up and were really bad, a.k.a. Adam and Eve, or you were awesome and deemed the father of faith, it didn't matter. God was still there. And he was still intricately involved in your life. Um, today, it is my assignment to preach from 
Genesis chapter 37 and introduce a new character. His name's Joseph. Uh, and I'm really excited. It's kind of a, I'm kind of scared too because Joseph is a big deal. Uh, I didn't realize this. Uh, from Genesis chapter 37 to Genesis chapter 50, we're going to see Joseph's life chronologically unfold from the moment he's 17 to his death at 110. 30% of Genesis is about Joseph. So if you have your Bibles with you, can you throw them up in the air? One, two, three holy Christians. Amen. No, I'm just kidding. Aren't you glad that you're not defined uh, by your own terms, but God defines you? Uh, he says he loves us because he loves us. Uh, and that's, that's the bottom line. I love that. Uh, Genesis chapter 37. We're going to start off in verse 1. And uh, we're going to read a lot. But I promise you it will make sense. Uh, and you will get something out of this. Let's see if I can. My Bible's coming apart, so let's see if I can hold it. Uh, Jacob lived in the land where his father stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the son of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made him an ornate robe for him. Verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers, they hated, him, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Verse 9 or verse 8. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Verse 9. Then he had another dream. And he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and the stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Verse 12. Now his brothers had gone to graze the father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to them, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off to the valley of Hebron, from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? Verse 16, he replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flock? They moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dotham. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dotham. They, but they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Verse 19, here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Reuben steps in. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue them from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. And I'm going to skip down a little bit. Verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. And then verse 26, Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on our brother. The word of the Lord. Amen. That's a lot of scripture, but we're going to break it all down. The remaining time I have with you, I want to bring this story to life. And I want to illustrate two specific themes that I believe God's trying to communicate here. One, it is his sovereignty, and two, our rebellion against it. In other words, how God has his sovereign plan over our lives, and he works out his purposes despite 
if we're rebelling against him or in his will, God gets what he's going to get done. God has a purpose. God has a plan. Uh, and my goal is that you may walk out of here really encouraged, really full of faith, refreshed, knowing that you serve a God who is there, a God who is sovereign. Will y'all pray with me? Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, God. I pray, God, that as we look into the scripture, God, we see a little bit ourselves, God, and above that, we see Jesus, God, and that you may refresh us, God, uh, you may restore us and redeem us, God. Uh, as we study Joseph, God, may we see ourselves, God, and Holy Spirit, may you speak through me uh, and use me, Father, as your vessel. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's how the story kind of opens up. I, I love this story. Uh, we already get a really cool picture of, uh, of Jacob's home life. Uh, the scripture says that he has 12 kids, which is pretty normal in my culture. Uh, and uh, the youngest one is Joseph. Uh, but really what we, we can't, the scripture doesn't really say is that Joseph is actually the oldest son. Uh, the oldest son from his wife, Rachel, the one he really loved. And for some particular reason, Jacob really likes Joseph, and the brothers hate it. At the beginning of the story, we kind of see that, that, that Joseph is kind of a tattletale. He brings a bad report to the father, and already the brothers hate him because he got him in trouble, but also because he's the father's favorite. On top of that, we can see emotionally that he's the father's favorite, but physically as well, because the Bible says that he makes him a robe, a cape, a garment, some sort of you know, Versace sweater. Like, could you imagine if, uh, if you were hanging out with your 12 brothers and, and you walked into the living room and you saw your father knitting a sweater? Like, not your mom knitting a sweater, your father's knitting a sweater. And then he's bedazzling it because it says it's all ornate. And you're like, what? What are you doing? And you approach him and you ask him, who's that for? And he says, oh, it's for Joseph, the son I love. Oh, the brothers were hurt. They were bitter. They were angry. They couldn't stand Joseph. And then on top of that, Joseph has a dream. And Joseph wakes up from this very prophetic dream. Obviously, God is speaking to him. Obviously, it was a God thing because he was so excited he wanted to share it with everyone. And so he goes up to his brothers and he's like, bros, check out this dream I had. And they're like, yeah, tell us a dream. Well, in this dream, we were binding sheaves of grain when all of a sudden mine rose and stood upright while yours bowed down to it. I'm going to be honest with you. I take issue with this dream because it doesn't make all that sense to me. Uh, I know it's a prophetic dream and I should knock it down, but, but let me explain to you why. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with what a sheaf of grain is, I had to look this up. It's literally a bundle of wheat, like, like wheat that grows in the field and you bundle it up. Okay, so what it, may, let me explain even more. If I'm hanging out with Peter here uh, and I say, Peter, bro, I had this dream and I have to share it with you because it's prophetic. Peter would say, yeah, let me hear it. I say, Peter, in this dream, we're hanging out, driving in your Prius, when all of a sudden, your bundle of grain started bowing down to my bundle of grain. Peter would look at me, and two things could happen. Option A, the glory of the Lord hits him, because it's a dream from God, and he's out on the ground. Or option B, which is more likely, he would look at me and say, bro, this is why you're single. And I would walk away full of shame. That's not how the brothers respond, though. The brothers are furious. They're angry. They're raging. They're like, whoa, is he saying what, what I think he's saying? Do you intend to reign over us? And Joseph's probably so confused. He's like, God, you gave me this dream. I know it's a, it, it, it's a prophetic thing. Why are they so mad? The brothers, the brothers didn't get it. Later on, we go to see the significance the dream carries. We go to see that there's going to be a place and a time when there's no food, when there's famine, 
and Joseph is going to save his family from starvation, and it will make sense of the dream, but they can't see it now. But I find it very interesting to notice that when you take into account the brother's selfishness, their bitterness, their anger, they don't like Joseph. And it's amazing to see how their emotions, how their sinfulness really affects their perspective. Like instead of the brothers seeking out like, okay, Joseph said he had a dream. Uh, I remember, you know, Father uh, Jacob telling us he had a dream with God once. Oh, even great-grandfather Abraham. Like dreams were a common occurrence. But instead of the brothers seeking out what God was saying in the dreams, they were so consumed with themselves, and they missed the bigger picture. They missed what God was trying to communicate. This is, this is my life daily. I don't, I don't get mad very often, uh, but when I do, uh, I suck at life. I'm a horrible person, uh, and I take everything out of context. Like if my own roommate, Josh Grill, came up to me and he said, bro, let's go to Fuego. You would like that, wouldn't you? You think you're going to reign over me? And uh, I know that's kind of a stretcher, but that's so true for a lot of us. We can really miss what God's trying to do. We can really miss what God's trying to communicate when we're so consumed in our own flesh and our own rebellion. Joseph has another dream. Uh, and you think he would have got it the first time. His brothers didn't like it, but he's like, dude, I got to share with you another dream. This time he shared it with his father. He said, in this dream, the, the moons and the stars were bowing down to me. And his father says the same thing. Do you think you're going to reign over me? And he gives him like an old school butt whooping. I rebuke you, he said. And the brothers were mad. The father kept in mind, the matter in mind, and the scripture says that the brothers grew more jealous of him. So the brothers are off. Uh, the father sends them to graze cattle, find pasture land in Shechem. Uh, Joseph's home alone. And the father, he, he kind of cares for his kids. He wants to see how his kid's doing. So he says, hey, go check up on your brothers in Shechem. Joseph says, very well. So uh, he heads off to Shechem wearing his ornate robe. He gets there, and the Bible says he's wandering around. Uh, but the original language suggests something a little bit differently. It says he was completely lost. He had no clue where he was. He was so lost that a man came up to him and said, hey, what are you doing? Who are you looking for? This man, Joseph says, I'm looking for my brothers. Have you seen them? This man says, well, I, I saw your brothers here, but I overheard them and said, they're going to dough them. And Joseph's like, dough them? What's in dough them? That's 15 miles north from here. Very well, I'll go find my brothers. So Jacob makes another trek. First, it was 50 miles from the land of Canaan to Shechem. Now it's another 15 miles from Shechem to dough them. And he's walking. And all of a sudden, the Bible says that he sees his brother in the distance. And his brothers notice Jacob. And when they notice him, they say, this is, this is our chance. Now we can kill him. Now we can murder him. And it says they plot, they start plotting how to kill him. We'll, we'll murder him and throw him into the cistern. Uh, a cistern is a huge pit, a huge tank of water that, 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 that's used to, you know, hold water for, for the animals and for the pasture. And they said, we'll just throw him in there. Nobody will ever know. And as Joseph approaches, Reuben says, no, we're not going to do that. Like the older brother, he ruins all the fun. He says, we're not going to murder him. Just throw him into the pit. This one's empty. So Joseph approaches the brothers. They rip him, strip him of his clothes. He's naked, full of shame, and betrayed. And they throw him into the pit. The brothers start eating. They make a mockery of it. They're totally cool with it. They're like, yeah, our plan's going to work. We threw Joseph in the pit. Now he's going to die. The Bible goes a step further to tell us that this pit was empty. Usually there's water in these things, but this one was empty. 
and, and I want to be very sensitive when I say this, but I love, I love the fact that, that what the brothers tried to use to kill Joseph, God used it to preserve his life, a pit. And, and maybe right now you feel like you're in a place of darkness where nothing makes sense, and you're in a pit, and you're like, you feel betrayed, you feel shamed, and you're in your sin, and you're thinking, God, where are you? The very thing you think is trying to kill you right now, God's using it to preserve you and get you somewhere. Later on, we see that Judah notices a band of Ishmaelite slave traders. They're heading off to Egypt, and Judah has this brilliant idea. What will we gain if we actually kill our brother? Let's just sell him off to, to, to these Ishmaelites as a slave. So for 20 shekels, they pull him out of the pit and sell him off to uh, these, uh, these spice traders, these slave traders. Now, 20 shekels in today's currency, don't take my word for this, but it looks like 5 to 10 bucks. For 5 to 10 bucks, they get rid of their brother. And they, well, they think they're never going to see him again. Reuben comes back to the pit. He looks in the pit, tears off his clothes. What has happened about my brother? He's not here. Goes up to his brothers. Where's Joseph? The brothers say, it's okay. We took care of it. Joseph's gone. What do you mean? We sold him off as a slave. What are we going to do? Don't worry. We got it under control. So they get the brother's robe. They, they, they dip it in sheep blood. And they say, we'll just tell father an animal destroyed him, devoured him. And that's what they do. So they make their trek back to the land of Canaan. They go up to the father and say, Father, we don't really know what happened to your son. We just found his robe, and it's covered in blood. They lied to the father. And as the father is mourning the death of his son, Joseph is shackled to a caravan and sold off in Egypt to a very prominent official named Potiphar. And this is where chapter 37 concludes. Now, I'm going to spoil it a little bit because I think y'all are going to come back and hear the rest of Joseph's story. But long story short, through a series of ups and downs, ups and downs, we see Joseph's rise to authority and power and prominence as he becomes the governor of Egypt. And he leads Egypt into seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine. But during the famine, everything's okay. Everything's under control because Joseph has everything taken care of. When there's no food everywhere else, there's food in Egypt. And while his brothers are starving to death in Canaan, Jacob tells his bro- uh, the brothers, hey, go, go to Egypt. I hear there's food there. And then the brothers encounter Joseph. They didn't recognize him, but Joseph ends up saving their family from starvation. And we begin to make sense of Joseph's life. We begin to see what God was trying to do here, the whole purpose, the whole plan was to move Joseph from Egypt so he can move Israel to Egypt. And we see that they grow there for 400 years. There's 400 years of slavery as it was prophesied, but God was trying to do something. It's so easy for us to say, look at this from an outside perspective. Troy in the nine said a God's eye perspective. I love that. It's so easy to look at it from a God's eye perspective and say, you know what? Well, when you put it that way, yeah, God was doing something. He was trying to get Joseph to Egypt. And, and you know what? Maybe the, maybe the betrayal wasn't that bad. Maybe the enslavement wasn't that bad. Because in the end, we see he's governor over Egypt and rules over everything, and he has a good deal at the end. And we're so good at saying stuff like, everything works out together for the good of those who love Christ. We're so good at saying that. But when we flip the script on ourselves, it's not as easy to say. When we're in the pit, when we're experiencing suffering and pain and betrayal, it's not as easy to say, hey, everything works out together for the good of those who love Christ Jesus. And it's all too easy to say, God, where are you? God, what's going on? Later on, we'll see 
that Joseph played a very unique role in redemptive history. But I want to suggest to you today that God's involvement in Joseph's life is not that unique to yours. That the same God that was with Joseph when he woke up from the dreams, that was with him in the pit, that was with him in the caravan, that was with him on the throne, is the same God that knitted you in your mother's womb and was with you since the beginning. God has a purpose, God has a plan for you, and everything is going to work out. It's in Egypt when we get a sense of Joseph's destiny, Joseph's purpose. It's where we can make sense of his suffering, where we can make sense of his shame, where we can make sense of the brother's rebellion in Egypt. And it's at the cross where we can make sense of our suffering, where we can make sense of our shame, of our our sin. It's at the cross where we can make sense of God's goodness. The same sovereign hand of God that got Joseph to Egypt is the same sovereign hand of God that got Jesus to the cross. And it's at the cross where God gets us back to himself. In, in 2011, I was, I was 17 going on 18 like Joseph. Uh, I know I still look 17. Calm down. Uh, but, but my life didn't look anything like Joseph's. Mine looked more like the older brothers. I was consumed... Uh, in my own self, in my own sin, my own insecurities. I wanted to do my own thing. Uh, so I came to Texas State University to, to do exactly just that, uh, to pursue the college lifestyle. It looked fun in the music videos. It looked fun in the movies. I was like, yeah, let's do it. I love college. Um, some of y'all too old or young for that, I don't know. Uh, and so that's what I did. And so I began to seek purpose in things that weren't giving me purpose or identity. Uh, and in a moment when I was pursuing sin, no one ever told me Jesus pursues sinners, not a head-on collision with the creator of the universe. That even in my rebellion, even in, in, in my own will, God was still pursuing me and working out something for his good. It's so easy for me to say that now because I'm like, oh, yeah, I love Jesus now. You know what? All the suffering, all the pain is worth it. Uh, and, and we can make sense like when Paul says, hey, uh, the, the trials and tribulations you're experiencing now uh, don't compare to the glory that will be revealed in Christ Jesus. I want to encourage you today. I want to remind you today that God is there, that he's never left you, that he's never forsaken you, that the same God that was with Joseph through it all is with you through it all. So you might be in rebellion right now, You might be running from God. Guess what? He's running after you with everything he has, and there's nothing you can do to outrun him. He will get you. He will get you. At the cross, I made sense of my shame. I made sense of my sin. I made sense of God's goodness. It was at the cross where I was able to come to Jesus and be like, okay, this all makes sense now. You love me so much so that you would send your only begotten son to die for me. There's purpose in the cross. That's where your purpose, that's where your destiny is revealed. God had to get Joseph to Egypt, and God's trying to get you to the cross in the moment where you come to Jesus and find meaning in Christ. How are we doing? Good? Okay, cool. I think I have like three hours left. Uh, no, we're about, we're about to wrap it up. I want to encourage you. Uh, despite where you think you're at in life, God's still chasing you, and God's still pursuing you, and he's still intricately involved in your life. Uh, and, and there's hope, because our hope is in Jesus. Uh, and the most amazing thing to me is that 
in what we perceived as one of the most hopeless situations in humanity and history. When the son of the living God was in the tomb, he didn't stay there. He resurrected and got out of the tomb. And that's the basis of our hope, is that we serve an eternal God who's real and who's alive and who's still working. If I can get Josh Garo back up here, uh, and maybe a couple growth group leaders, I, I want to I wrap this up uh, by inviting you uh, into a moment where you can come to Jesus, uh, where you can make sense of maybe your suffering, where you can make sense of your shame, where you can make sense of your sin. Uh, a come to Jesus moment. If you've, if you've never... If you've never been in a relationship with God, if that, doesn't, if that sounds weird to you, uh, God's inviting you with open arms to, to run with him, to walk with him, and he's making a way for you. Uh, even though you don't think you've been with him, he's been with you this whole time, despite what life looks like, despite where you're at, and he's, he's getting you somewhere. He, he's going he's gonna to reveal purpose to you, identity to you. It's all going to make sense. But if you need prayer for absolutely anything, I mean anything, uh, don't hesitate from coming up here. There's nothing special about this. It's it's just convenient because there's space. Uh, But don't rob yourself of a moment with God. Uh, That being said, I just want to pray. Father, I just come to you in in Jesus' name, God. Thank you so much, Father, that that you love us, God, that that you're for us, God. I thank you, God, that Joseph's life is, is a testament of how real you are, Father, of how involved you are. That even in our darkest times, we can have hope that you're there because we saw that you were there for Joseph. You saw, we saw that you were getting him somewhere. And we can have hope, God, that, that you're going to get us somewhere too, that, that it's all going to make sense. So, Father, I pray that, that you, you bless every single soul in here, Father, that you bless every single person in here, God, that, that as they continue to run after you, Father, that you continue to show them Jesus, Father, uh, and bless their relationship, God. Thank you, God, that our hope is in Jesus, God, and we can walk out of here full of faith and courage, God, because Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. So if you need prayer for anything, uh, Don't even hesitate. Come on up.